You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible, I think I say this every time, please pull it out or open your phone. We are looking at this um, amazing story. It's kind of, again, it's one of those two-for-one stories. We see this often where Mark kind of puts a couple things together, and this one the reason why we're seeing two for one is because they kind of happen at the same time. And we have chosen to go through Mark this year for really specific reasons. We wanted to take some time to like marinate in this book. You know, if you've ever marinated uh, meat or something before, you know, get that flavor in to let it soak in hours and hours. And that's what we're doing with Mark. We're just, we're literally taking hours and hours together as a congregation with the hope and the prayer that some of the things that we see in the text and see in the life of Jesus begins to like enter in. That the Holy Spirit would have lots of time to be able to speak to us in different ways Knowing that on some Sundays it's going to land really well for some, and on some other Sundays it's going to land really well for others. And the goal is that each week we would come to see in the Gospel of Mark just a few things. That we would see Christ as King. This kind of, this theme that goes throughout the book that Christ is the King. And that we would enter in as his followers, and see and learn how to live like Jesus lived. And then ultimately that we would actually be a part of his kingdom as it goes out into the world through our lives and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this week, we specifically come to a text that that is all about desperation. And I chose that word desperation, but I thought this week I could have used the word like trouble or need, some sort of way to say like help. Trouble is in the air. And so this is what we're looking at this week. And maybe an example to kind of help us think about this idea of desperation, and maybe this is a little bit of an extreme example, but it it helped me at least in terms of thinking about how we can respond in moments of desperation. Just the other week, I re-watched the movie from the 90s called Alive. I don't know if you ever watched that movie, but it was a true story of a Uruguayan rugby team that was going to play a rugby match, um, I forget where, it was like in Chile or something. So they had to cross the Andes, okay? They had to go from the east to the west. And as they were crossing the Andes, they actually crashed and kind of landed in the, well, they didn't land, they crashed in the Andes, okay? And storms came and they were stuck out there for days and days and days. And the reason why the story was so captivating and was so um, interesting for the news and for media was because they were stuck there for, I don't know, I think it was like 90 days or something, and they had ran out of food, so they had like chocolate and wine, which only lasted so long. And finally, they said in this like moment of desperation, we have to do something really extreme. And I don't know if you know what they did, but they had to eat human flesh to stay alive. The dead bodies that were there was the only thing that they could actually take in to consume. And the story went like crazy all over the world because this was like amazing desperation. But they knew that in that moment, 
the only way that they were going to survive, the only way that they were actually going to get out was to do that. And it gave them enough strength to actually send a party of two people to go and climb over multiple ridges to get out to, t- to ask for help. And then help came and arrived. Like what an extreme example of desperation. But the reason why desperation works so well as a word is it, it, it forced them to actually make some choices to do some things that they never would have done. They never, ever would have even thought about doing what they did. But desperation brought that decision and brought that opportunity for, in in that case, it was for survival. In our story today, in the text, we have actually two stories colliding together of people in a state of desperation. A similar thing where they come to this moment where they have to make some sort of decision to survive. And we're introduced to two very different people. And so the story begins by introducing us to these two very different people who both come to Jesus in this moment of desperation. And so let's read some of these verses again and see who it is that we are, who it is that the story is actually talking about. So in verse 21 of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, again it says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, or Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus went with him. So here we are introduced to Jairus. This, it, it calls him a ruler of the synagogue. Here's a man who is religious. He is probably well known in the town where he lives. He's probably well respected. He's the guy who's there at the synagogue to clean it out, to make sure that it's all running well, that the, I was going to say that the lights were working, but there was no lights, that the candles were lit, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's making sure that everything is running smooth and everybody like looks to him. He's probably even a, similar to like a Pharisee. He knows the Torah well. He knows all the rules and what it means to be in the presence of God at the temple and especially in the synagogue. And here he is, this guy who's kind of like, everybody thinks he's got it together, and he's in a moment of desperation now. Because it's one thing if you're struggling. You know, we can, we can take it ourselves sometimes. When something really difficult is happening in the context of maybe like a family, we would say, like, I can handle this. But to see a child... Maybe if you think of like seeing a nephew of yours or a niece of yours, or maybe like the context here, you see your own child, your own daughter sick to the point of death. At that point, most of us who are parents, probably all of us were like, I'll do anything, right? Give that sickness to me. Let me resolve that somehow. What do I need to do to get this child to be back to 100%? And that's where 
Jairus finds himself. He finds himself in a moment of desperation. And remember, Jesus in this region was like, he was like a troublemaker. He was like something that the religious leaders were investigating and they weren't really sure about what he was up to. Was he good? Was he bad? They were probably falling more on the side of he's bad. And Jairus maybe was even in on some of those discussions. And now in that moment of desperation, that all just evaporates. And he's like, I am at the end here. I need to go and try something, anything. And so he goes to Jesus. The story goes on. And interjects into that, introduces us to the woman. No name, just introduces us to the woman. Verse 25, let's read again. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. So here comes now this woman who has had years and years of blood and of trouble in her life, and she has experienced all the, the negative, negativity that comes with that. And for us in our modern mind, we don't necessarily understand on face value what a woman like this would have gone through. So let's read some verses. If you've got a Bible, look back in Leviticus 15. Okay, we don't go to Leviticus very often, right, on a Sunday morning, um, because there's some verses in here that are like strange for us. Okay, in Leviticus uh, chapter 14, you can see there's laws on cleansing related to lepers and related to uh, homes. And then in chapter 15, it talks about like the heading of my Bible says laws about bodily discharges. Okay, that's when you're like, when you're doing your annual one-year Bible reading, you're like, oh man, here we go. I'm flying through these ones, right? You're like, laws on bodily discharges. So then it talks about things related to men. And then here in verse 19, it talks about things related to women. It says this, When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And it goes on and on. There's more details to that, okay? Then down to 31. We're not going to read. I included those verses, but we're not going to read all the other ones. But down to 31, it says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So these are some wild verses here in Leviticus. These, I mean, people would read these and they're like, that's why I don't like the Bible, right? They're like, there's some strange stuff in here. And we got to remember that this is a 3,000-year-old text Right, that doesn't understand all that's going on in the, in the medicine world, but what God is actually 
giving them here is ceremonial laws that dictates their lives and gives order and, and tells them what is clean and what is unclean. And, and this kind of mindset, this understanding of the law is still on the minds of the people that are in Jesus' day. So when they see a woman like this, and when she lives, she is under this kind of Levitical law. And she is viewed as unclean. She is viewed as ceremonially separate. And just like the legal laws related to the lepers and to people who are unclean, ceremonial unclean, she is meant to be outside, right? Outside of the camp. And people who hear about her uncleanness are to stay back and to stay separate. You don't want to touch her. You don't want to get near her because then you are also ceremonially unclean. And then verse 31 of Leviticus 15 says again that she is not only ceremonially unclean for her own good, but also that she will not defile the temple. And so she's not even to go near there. So here you have in Mark's story, this woman who draws near who is on the outside, man. For like over a decade. And everybody knows it. And she's been kind of hiding on the outside and is totally in a state of desperation. But it goes further, right? Not only is she ceremonially unclean, but she's also tried, it says, for years to have some sort of healing. And she's gone to what the text says is doctors, but their doctors is very different from what we understand doctors today, okay? Doctors back in that day is kind of more akin to like um, medicine men or people who can try different stuff. I found this in one of my commentaries this week. It was, it's, a, it's a text from the Talmud which has instructions on what to do if a woman has bleeding, okay? And there was all kinds of instructions, kind of things to try if this is your lot to try to remedy it. It says this, take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together, so like crush them, and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions, three pints, and boil them in wine. Yummy, doesn't that sound good? And give them to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind and frighten her, and say, Arise from thy flux. It sounds like what we do when we're trying to get like, someone to stop sneezing or hiccuping, right? Like we scare them. I don't know if you've ever done that. But this is the kind of advice that she's paying for. It's laughable, but this is the state that she's in. The text says she paid for this. She's desperately trying to have something fix what's going on in her body because it's putting her on the out. It's ruined her life. So can you see here in this text, this state of desperation of these two people, very different roads, one is like short-term, Jairus, I don't know, maybe the daughter was sick for days, weeks, maybe even months. And then the woman here who's been working on this thing and suffering from it for over a decade. 
12 years. And it reminds me that desperation actually comes to every one of us. Moments of desperation, be they short or be they long, come to every single one of us. There are moments and there are seasons in our lives that are hard and that bring us to this place of desperation. Now, the longer you live, the more you can recount the the hard and difficult times in your life. And so even if you would take some time, and I did that this week just to kind of go through the exercise, take some time to kind of think through the valleys and the mountains in your life. Just go back and recount some of those times. The amazing things that you were able to experience or be a part of. And then at the same time, the deep, deep valleys of difficulty, darkness, and desperation. And each one of us can look at those and we can see, we can kind of recount those, those mountaintop moments and those valleys. Every single one of us is going to go through them. The longer we live, they keep coming. They keep kind of piling up. And that's the case with these two individuals. But desperation has a silver lining. It actually has within it these opportunities. And we don't realize them often until after the fact. But they're actually for our good and they actually help us. Um, Last week I was watching this uh, little video. It was like a 60-minute kind of homemade video of this guy who spent 300 days on a Polynesian island all by himself. So he had a camera, solar panels, spent 300 days out there. And in the kind of video journal, after eight days, he was like going crazy, right? He was like, ah, it was, you know, he just couldn't handle it. And so he's recording himself. He's almost like kind of crying. He's in this moment of like agony and desperation. And the thing that he missed the most was like, there's nobody here to like talk to. There's nobody here to even, to argue with, to have an opposing view, to, you know, to have this like contrast. And he put it this way, there's, there's nobody here to create sparks with. There is a silver lining actually to difficulty and desperation. Ecclesiastes 7 puts it this way, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Most of us would be like, I'd rather be in a house of feasting. Like, come on, big table set up, really good. But the wisdom in Ecclesiastes says otherwise. Verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. There is a silver lining. There is actually something within the the desperation, within the difficulty of life that is able to awaken us to what's actually real. It's able to awaken us to something that is greater than a table of feasting, as good as that sounds. And so even us as as a little church plant, we're, we're like a couple years now, and Honestly, like, in a lot of areas, we've been in kind of like this state of, like, wondering. Like, is this going to work, you know? Is this going to happen? And we're kind of like, 
are we going to get kicked out of this building? And so we started in the basement and we were just like, I don't know, we'll just keep praying. We'll just keep staying until they kick us out. And then now we've like, we got to be here for a while. And now we're like kind of in this place, but we're all, all kind of knowing that this isn't really our place. We could be kicked out of here. And like all this little bit of desperation gives it actually a little bit of energy for some people. For others, maybe they don't even come, right? Because they don't even want to be a part of it. But for some of us, it brings like actually a little bit of energy. That, those sparks, that, that friction actually, if we're honest, opens us to actually see God do some things which is what we've longed for. It's like, okay, God, you got to come up now. You got to show up. You got to do something. And so he provides a little more. And so here we have this woman, 12 years in affliction, and this 12-year-old girl on death's doorstep, the moment of desperation has come to them. And what do they do in that moment? They go to Jesus. They take this bold and radical step in their desperation. They are presented with this opportunity to kind of sit and not do anything or to go and do something that is maybe radical and maybe very different and they don't even know if it's going to work, but they do it. They take this step of boldness and step towards Jesus. They go to him. And so Jairus, this religious leader, is willing to associate with Jesus, this radical. And this woman who is unclean, who's not even, she's not even supposed to be in the crowd. She's not even supposed to be touching anybody. It says in the text that she comes up behind Jesus and touches his, his clothes. She risks that. And so desperation has presented this opportunity. And for us, maybe the easy, easiest way for us to understand what's happening here is through the words pride and humility. Pride and humility. Because when we are coming up against desperation, we have an opportunity to either lean into our own internal fortitude, our own internal strength, or to step into a new kind of realm and rely on another's step towards God, step towards Christ. And so pride closes the door to bold trust and humility actually opens the door to trust. Pride actually closes the door to trust, but humility opens it. John Guest was a British evangelist in the 1960s, long time ago, and there's a story of him coming to uh, the U.S. and he was going to do some evangelistic tent meetings, you know, in the eastern area. And he was in the Philadelphia area. And the story goes that he wanted to see some of the old uh, sites like the Revolutionary War, the colonial things, all that kind of stuff related to kind of the idea of America like disassociating with England, right? I think he was just interested about that. And so he goes in and he's seeing all these historical sites. And then he goes into these gift shops and he sees all the stuff there. Like you can buy all this memorabilia, you can buy all these pictures, you can buy all these placards. And one of them caught his attention and it said this, we serve no sovereign. We serve no sovereign. That's referencing most likely the, 
the queen or the king, whoever was in at that time, because they're called the sovereign. We still have that in Canada. And yet here they were now in this like time America is separating from England. And so this line, we serve no sovereign, just stood out. And so John Guest said this, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? He wondered, how is this going to land? How is this message going to land of a sovereign God over all coming now to the lives of people? And listen, it is not just our American brothers and sisters to the south who kind of have that same aversion to sovereignty. It is in the heart of every single person. Each one of us actually has an aversion to the sovereignty of God, to God's reign on our lives, even to the reign of Jesus, as lovely as Jesus is. When you look at the stories and you see what Jesus does, we see a text like today, we're just like, Jesus is amazing. And yet when we are confronted with God in control of all things, oftentimes, more than maybe we would even like to admit, we give in to our own sovereignty rather than to the sovereignty of God. And those opportunities, when we reject God's place and his will for our lives, we actually close the door of opportunity to see what he wants to do in all the situations, the, the low valleys and the high ones. So pride closes the door to trust, but humility opens the door. Humility, a posture of openness to what God is doing, actually opens a door of opportunity. And maybe the greatest example of kind of seeing this journey in someone's life is in the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, you, you know that it's a book of total desperation, right? Of someone who is going through some really hard things, some really, really difficult, it's like complete dark valley. And in the book, Job is kind of like make, trying to make sense of what is going on in his life and what has all just happened to him. And what is God doing in the midst of all this? And near the end of the book, Job has this dialogue back and forth with God. And God is actually trying to get Job to see that he is actually working in the midst of this difficulty and in the midst of these difficult moments. And it kind of goes back and forth in chapter 38. God responds to Job. And then in verse 40, Job responds back to God. And then again in verse 40, and we'll read a few of these verses just to see this. God further responds to Job here in verse 6. It says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this? And it goes on and on. And God is saying, Job, do you know who I am? Are you like me, Job? And God is not trying to be mean. God is not just trying to like push Job down in his place. I mean, he's God. Come on. Job is a man. He doesn't need to do that. What is God doing in this moment? God is trying to help Job see what's actually happening in the midst of all the chaos of his life. And Job finally sees it in verse 42. Verse 2 through 6, 
It says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes." Job in that moment finally came to see what God was actually doing and maybe even maybe even better than that or more than that who it was that was actually with him in the midst of all the chaos and the desperation of his life. We are presented with these opportunities in the valleys and even on the mountaintops of our lives to lean into God or to lean into ourselves. And in this moment, in the story that we are looking at here this morning, both of them do that. They lean in. They actually put their hope and their trust in something outside of themselves. So how do we do that? Like, Jesus is not here. You can't sneak up behind him anymore to even touch his cloak, right? He's not here that you can go visit him. You can't bring your problem right to his feet physically because he is at the right hand of the Father now. But God has given to us, his people, ways that we can actually experience the things that are being experienced in the text here. And we've been talking about them for months now. These ways where we actually put into practice things that we do in our daily lives to put our dependence and our trust on God. They're things that we're really familiar with. So coming to the word of God, to experience like a nearness with God in this text. And more and more, I think it's harder and harder for us to do that. I find myself more and more distracted, sitting down to be present and to be actually listening to God from this text is harder and harder Because I'm just drawn to like, check Twitter one more time. Check the NFL score one more time. See if I got another email. Like I'd rather do anything other than just in the moment experience Jesus. And yet this is actually a means to experience Jesus. Moments of prayer or silence or even experiencing God in fasting. These are ways to actually physically bring our our mind and body together to experience the nearness of Christ. We're also, we've been designed by God to be a part of community. And so we are to experience Jesus in the community, the fellowship of God's people. Now that's harder nowadays because we're like supposed to be at home and we're not supposed to be together. But to actually be physically present or even, God can work the miracle, to feel that connection over Zoom, okay? To feel some sort of connection with brothers and sisters in Christ in the gathering of his people, in person, or over Zoom, or through other means. These are some of the graces that God gives to us to experience the closeness of God. And when we come back to the story here, we see actually how Jesus responds in that moment of desperation. We get a glimpse of what God is like in the flesh. 
And so we see a few things, and we're just, I'm just going to point out three this morning to kind of end our time together. In the desperation, Jesus acts this way. The first one is this, that Jesus comes near. Jesus comes close. Look again at Mark chapter 5, verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? So Jesus knows somebody has touched him. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus knew that someone had touched him. Power had gone out of him, and he wanted to know who. Not to condemn, not to start throwing stones. He wanted to know, probably for our own benefit and for the audience, who it was that had touched him. And when she came forward, you probably could have heard the gasps in the crowd. You probably could have heard people saying, she's not even supposed to do that. She's not even supposed to be here. And yet here she was in his presence. And Jesus lets her come near. Jesus does not cast her out. Jesus does not push her away. He knows that she would be ceremonially unclean. He knows that he's actually ceremonially unclean because she's touched him. But he wants to know who. He wants her to draw close. You may feel, or you may have experienced, the recoiling of people. You may have experienced, or maybe you can just think in your mind, because of sin that's in your life, because of experiences that you've had, because of things that you think or have experienced by people, that if anybody knew your deep valley that they would just recoil. They would just pull back. And you probably even bring that perspective to the person of Jesus Christ. And what we need to see, and what we really need to let sink into our minds here, is that in this story, the person who should be on the out, the person that should be not close, the person that everybody should be, you know, recoiling from, Jesus says, who is it? And he wants her to come near. Psalm 34 puts it this way, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Listen to verse 18 here. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. God does not push us away when we are in that moment of discouragement, of feeling crushed. People may. The church you attend may. Citizens' church may, may even. I pray that it doesn't, but it may happen. But I want you to know this, and I want you to see clearly from the text, God, and through the person of Jesus, does not push us away. He comes near. He comes near to the brokenhearted. 
But secondly, we also see this, that Jesus acts on his own timeline. Jesus acts on his own timeline. This week I was learning how to make sourdough bread. Okay, and I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it's quite a process. It takes a long time. I'm a little late in the game. You know, sourdough bread was in kind of when the pandemic started, but I'm kind of in on it late. But I'm like a, I'm, I don't cook a lot. Ask Liz. I don't bake a lot. I don't think I've baked a, a bread in like 20 plus years. And so I need accuracy on the recipe. I mean, if it says 15 minutes to let the dough sit, I'm letting her sit 15 minutes to the second, okay? That's just how I do my baking and my cooking. I need accuracy. Time means something. God is not like that. God is not like our kind of Western mindset of punctuality and, you know, getting things exactly right. God actually has a much bigger picture. God sees all of eternity and he sees all the details of life that are happening. He's able to like take that and pull it all in and make sense of it. And in this story, remember it begins with Jairus' desperation for his daughter. And now Jesus has paused and he's helping this woman. And you can just see Jairus on the side being like, hello. He's not looking at his watch. He's looking at the sun, right? He's like, hello, my daughter is dying can we wrap this up with the woman with the bleeding to get to my daughter? And then verse 35 says this, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus, it's done. Just tell, call it off. It's, it's kind of past. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever come across a moment like that where you just think the timing is totally wrong? God, you missed your opportunity. Your opportunity was there, God, to kind of like fix it, to get it right, and now we're way past it. You can just head on out, God. It's done. Peter, in 2 Peter, and maybe even with this in mind, this story in mind, talks, has a word to the believers that he's writing in that letter. They're facing persecution. They're facing hardship. They are probably seeing people suffering and maybe even dying for standing up for their faith. And they're like, Peter, what kind of word do you have for us? Like, where is God in our trouble? Where is he to kind of save us and to help us? We're his people, aren't we? Where is he to kind of resolve the problem before us? And Peter writes this in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here he's specifically talking about salvation, but he's saying, listen, God's plans, the way that he works things out, are different from our own timing. God sees a greater picture. And so Peter says, take comfort in that. Like, hold on to that. That God is actually doing something, even in the moments of desperation and difficulty. This brings us to our last one. So if God was only one who comes near and who knows all that's happening and has the timing of everything, that would be great, but it would be a little bit cold, and it would be a little bit like 
distant still. And yet here we see in the text, with those things, we actually see that Jesus shows love and mercy in a way that is stunning to the audience. God's love is on display through the person of Jesus. And it comes to us in his response to both of these events. Look at verse 34. It says this, And he said to her, this is to the woman with the bleeding, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter. And then verse 41, when talking to the girl, so he's gone to this home where everybody is grieving and the people are wailing already. They're getting ready for the funeral. And then he comes and he heals her. And he says in verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. What's interesting is that in Mark's recording of Peter's story. Peter has like burned on his mind this phrase, Talitha kumi. The Aramaic that Jesus would have actually spoke is recorded into the Greek text. Because Peter, when he's telling Mark this, he's like, okay, Mark, here's what happened in the story. Like here's this like amazing moment. Jesus comes to this little girl and like a, like a loving Father, And I don't know what your experience of a father was, but Jesus as like the, the perfect example of like a perfectly loving, caring father comes to the child and he says, Talitha kumi. And Peter's like, Mark, you could hear a pin drop in the room. And he says, Mark, when you write that story down, you include that. Those are the very words of Jesus. Talitha kumi. You see this like heart of a loving father for the little girl that he raises to life and also to the woman that he calls daughter. We enter into this relationship with God in our, in our valleys and our highs, in the brokenness of our world because of things that have been done to us or because of things that we have done. And God knows all that's happening. He knows the timing of everything. And he is a loving father present and near to us. And so burned in our memory should also be this this language of a loving father to his children. Let me just conclude with this. It was almost, uh, I think it was like 25 years ago, um, we lived up in Durham. Liz and I lived in Durham, and we were driving down actually to Woodside to like an evening service or something, and we came to the corner in Tiviotdale. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Now there's a roundabout there, but back then there was just a light, and I just wasn't paying attention at all. Okay, so I was coming to make a left turn, and it was total red light. We're not talking yellow here. We're not talking like green to yellow, complete red. I just wasn't paying attention at all. So I make the, you know, left blinker goes on, and I go through the light. And it's one of those moments, I don't know if you've ever had this, but the lights from a semi-truck were right there. And I thought, like in a split second, I thought, I'm ready to go home, Lord. 
it's been a great life, you know. And it was like, we just made that left turn and the, the semi-truck was pulling its horn and I still have that sound in my head. Just past us. And I went and like parked on the side of the road and heart was racing and Liz and I like kind of looked at each other and we're like, whoa. We just like got that close to being like pancakes because we were in like a really cheap little car too, right? We would have been gone. And at that moment, I was like, man, we like, we kind of like survived it, right? And it's been like this story that we've often kind of chuckled about in the past, but it's kind of like we got away with it. Like we made it through that one moment. But as we lived life now, and those of you who've lived many, many years, you discover that you miss some of those moments and you're just like, thank you, Lord, for saving me from that. But we go through a lot of valleys. There's a lot of things that happen to each and every one of us that we can't, we can't like avoid. And we just like, we sometimes we step into them or we get stepped on by them. And they just come and they just come. And why are we given this story here in Mark? It's not just a, this is not just history recorded for us, even though it is history. The reason that we're given a story like these two women's story is because their story is our story. Depending on your life, you and I will go through these deep, dark, difficult moments. But even if we live and have like a, like a very problem-free life, even if life is like super smooth and we look back at, you know, we're 80 years old and we're like, man, my life has been really good, not a lot of hard things. Each and every one of us actually is facing a death sentence as well. Each and every one of us, because of our own sin, actually stands before God guilty. We, just like these women, are in need of a resurrection. Just like Jesus says to this little girl, arise. We need to hear that word as well. And the good news of the gospel, the amazing news, the good news of what Jesus has done is he has gone before us. And his death, life, resurrection is for us so that we too can hear those words arise and enter into a new life with our loving Father and experience his presence in the valleys so that we never walk alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the good news. Thank you for these amazing stories and seeing your healing hand in the, in the story of these two women. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us today. We, are, we all experience on different levels desperation. If nothing else, Lord, we're feeling and we're struggling through this pandemic. But yet each one of us also has different things happening in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, today I pray that we would see your hand in this story and that we would actually choose today in humility to draw close to you, to come to you. May we not pass you by. In Jesus' name, amen.